Coming up on today's episode, we've got Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited for part two of custom fitting your bike to your body. We're going to talk about your foot area, which means foot pegs, shift lever, and brake lever. We're also going to talk with Scott Wright from IMS Products about how foot pegs are made and what things we should be looking at with them. And as well, we've stumbled across a chain oiler that may save you a lot of money and solve some oil delivery problems that you may have had with other chain oilers. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Dustin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed Mark. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lamphere. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tack. Zoe Cano. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ross. Jeremy Creaker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. This is Nathan Millward. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you want when you're exploring the world. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system, and it's easy to switch from one bike to another. And of course... Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. You've got to check out the buckles, the straps, the whole bit. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. This is part two of our three-part series, custom fitting your bike to your body size. Today, we're going to talk about foot pegs. We're going to talk about setting up your shifter and your brake levers. We, of course, have Grant Johnson once again from Horizons Unlimited. He's going to come in and walk us through this setup, which he's done before. Now, we're going to do a little bit of a recap so you get an idea of what we did last week. But if you haven't heard last week's show, you'll definitely want to go back and listen to that because it's getting your bike set up. So get your notepads out and let's get our bike set up. Part two of custom fitting your bike to your body size. Grant, great to have you back for our second episode of custom fitting your bike. Thanks, Jim. It's good to be back. I hope everybody had some fun adjusting their bike and tried it out. Hopefully it's all better. Maybe what we should do is just do a, just a slight recap for last week. We talked about adjusting the cockpit area. So just give us a quick recap. Yeah, we're talking about the getting the cockpit set. We talked about the neutral position, starting at the zero position where your arms and hands are comfortable, getting the handlebars level so that the grips are level, so that's a good starting position. 
and then getting the levers positioned correctly so that they're comfortable. You don't have to bend your wrist up or down, put extra stress on the muscles on your wrists, and getting the mirrors in a good, safe position so you have maximum visibility. And, of course, we talked a little bit about airflow and getting that windshield positioned right. Now, this week, we're talking about where we put our feet. So where do we start with this? Uh, the foot pegs. <laughs> As a place to put your feet, you mean? <laughs> I thought it was a good place. <laughs> so we're talking about, now, wait a second. I think most people are going to instantly say, wait a second, foot pegs aren't adjustable. Yes, they are. There's always ways to adjust foot pegs. There are foot pegs out there that you can buy that are positioned lower, sometimes higher. You can also put extra bits of metal on top and weld it on to make them higher if you need to. Uh, there are some foot pegs out there, particularly for the sporty bikes, that are adjustable for positioning to get everything just right. The foot peg position is important because you have to get that height right so that for you, you don't have too much knee bend. For some older folks who have bad knees, talk to me, uh, you might want your foot pegs a little bit lower so you don't have quite as tight a knee bend. Um, the lower the foot pegs are, the easier it is to stand up. You don't have so far to go. So things like that can make a difference. Also, you may need to move them forward or back, although generally we want to leave them in their standard position. Moving them forward and back is a rare and unusual adjustment, but it can be done. How do we know if we need to change the position of our foot peg? That's a tough one. Uh, I think it comes down to, as I started out to say earlier, uh, if you have knee problems, you might want to lower the foot pegs. If you're very tall, you might want to lower the foot pegs because otherwise your knees are too compressed. You might want to raise the foot pegs if you're very short. Um, those are the main reasons to raise or lower the foot pegs. Otherwise, like I say, it's, it's unusual to need to move the foot pegs and we'd rather not. But it is the platform that everything is based on. So the, the seat to foot peg to handlebar relationship has to work for you and be comfortable. If you're in doubt, talk to your dealer. See what they have to say about the, how it works for you. Most people in the five foot six to six two range, I'd be very surprised if you needed to move the foot pegs. Other other sizes, maybe. Last week you'd mentioned about um, making modifications to your bike and then riding it, and you said immediately it's going to feel uncomfortable or odd, but you, that's okay. You said ride into it. That's probably the same with the foot pegs. You, you don't want to get a new bike that may be different from your old bike and immediately say, oh, I've got to change these pegs because they don't feel like my old bike. Yeah, just give it a little bit of time and get used to them you will find that after a little while, the old bike feels very weird. Every once in a while, I switch back and forth bikes, borrow bikes or whatever, and it always feels weird. And the next day, it's fine because I've now adapted. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, we've adapted to a bike that's properly set up. I often get a bike. Um, I borrow a bike from a dealer or whatever, and, oh, this is really badly set up. And I ask for a wrench and start adjusting. And they're quite surprised when I do that. But it's amazing the difference it can make. It's quite important to get so, it right. Do you do a full adjustment? Like, is it a major thing you look for when you get on a bike like that? Or will you just get on and adjust everything for you immediately? If I'm going to ride it for the day, I don't bother. It's too much trouble. Um, and I'm adaptable. You know, I can, I can manage. Uh, but if I'm going to be riding it for a week or two, absolutely. I get out there and I make sure it's right. I set the first off, set the handlebars, set the levers, set the mirrors, gear levers, foot peg, brake pedal, stuff like that. I get all that set right. Yeah, it makes a lot of right sense. Up. So even if you're renting a bike, it'd be worthwhile. If you're going to go on a little trip, you, you should adjust it first. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The difference it can make in your comfort and lack of pain can be quite significant. Yeah. I've had lots of people take my ergonomics classes and say, you know, I've got this real 
pain in my neck or I've got this pain here, there and everywhere. And okay, let's figure out why. And you figure out why when you see them on their bike. Oh yeah. Okay. Here's your problem. It's usually pretty obvious. And it can even be control of the bike too, can't it? Sure. If you don't have good control, everything's easy to work. You, at the end of a long day, especially, your, your muscles are getting tired. Your wrists are tired because the levers are badly adjusted. You don't have full control when your muscles are tired. They, they have poor control, or poor fine control over things like clutches and braking. And if you have to hit the brake hard and your wrist is sore and tired, you're not going to do a very good job. Okay, so we talked about the the pegs moving them up and down or maybe forward and back depending. And like you said, it was a it's a very rare occurrence where you're having to do that. The only other things we have that are affected by the foot pegs that I can think of then is the brake pedal and the shift lever. Well, actually, I want to talk about the foot peg itself first. Oh. Um, <laughs> which seems a little weird. Um, sometimes there's people change their foot pegs not to raise them or lower them, but because they want more traction or they want a bigger foot peg. A lot of times in the old days, bikes came with quite small foot pegs, and somebody figured out that, you know, a bigger foot peg actually gives you a more solid platform to stand on. And that's great. And maybe a little bit more traction, a little better teeth. Uh, But where I think it goes wrong is I was just looking at a picture of a foot peg recently, and it had these spikes is the only way I can describe them. So that if you put your foot on that with any normal rubber boot, your foot is now glued to that foot peg. I want to be able to slide my foot off the foot peg. So I think it's important to have enough traction that your foot feels planted and solid, but it's important not to have it so well planted that you can't get it off when you need to. If you're in a tough, gnarly ground and all of a sudden you've got to put your foot down to save yourself, if your foot is glued to the foot, to the foot peg, you've got a problem. You're going to fall over. Um, the other thing that goes with that is a lot of bikes come with a rubber insert in the foot peg. And that's a very specific purpose, and that's, excuse me, to dampen vibration on the road. And, and you'll notice that all those rubber inserts on these adventure bikes are removable. On the BMWs, you just grab them and yank, and they come right off. And you're left with a nice, gnarly foot peg with some decent teeth that will hold your foot in place beautifully. I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm sure there's some people who may not have figured out those rubber things are removable, (laughs) you know, especially if it's one of your first adventure bikes, you may get on it and think that they're permanent and they tend to stick up a fair ways. Every class I do, I find that there's people there with those rubber foot pegs on and they've never removed them and I reach over and pull one out and everybody is, huh, what? (laughs) But, 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 but you're breaking my bike. (laughs) Nope, it's not. That's, because it looks like a part that's been, that's been built that way. It looks like that rubber piece is meant to be in there when you're looking at it. Absolutely. And it is. Good design. It is meant to be in there on the street. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you – if you stand up, in theory, when that rubber should compress so that you are now touching the metal. But I found that unless you're 300 pounds on most bikes, you don't. So yeah. you're on the rubber, which is squidgy. And the instant it gets wet, it's slippery, and you just don't feel attached to the bike. It's, I feel it's dangerous. I, I think this, the instant you're heading off-road, you should take them off. And I think everybody should take them off to start with and see if they actually need them on the street. Mm-hmm. I know I certainly don't need them on my bike. Yeah, I've removed them from mine for the same reason as well. I mean, I even had one time where I went into some deep water rather quickly, and it, and it blew my foot off the pedal because of that rubber on there. Yep, it's they're slippery, they're dangerous, they're they're a way to reduce vibration. Period. And if you don't find that the vibration on the foot peg is a problem, 
leave them out. Well, just because we've sort of headed down this, this path of talking about the, the foot pegs, one of our sponsors is IMS Foot Pegs. And by learning about their foot pegs, I realized that uh, all pegs are not created equal. Some peg manufacturers are making them so they add the width to the front and the back. So in other words, going forward and back of the bike. And that changes your leverage for when you're tilting your foot down to either shift or step on the brake. Yeah, I think I th- there's foot pegs out there that are, I think, too big. They're, they're too wide unnecessarily. They're too long fore and aft. They don't need to be. And the longer they are fore and aft, the harder it is to get your foot underneath the gear shift lever to change gears. Why would you do that? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me. You just need a good, solid platform. You don't need to su- something that's, it's, it's, I don't know, exotic and super cool and beautiful. You know, IMS makes some really nice foot pegs. I'll give them a lot of credit. They've got some good stuff in there. Uh, there's lots of other manufacturers out there that make good foot pegs too. So now what other adjustments do we have? Um, oh, one thing we didn't cover was um, pivot pegs. What about pivot pegs? Pivot pegs, um, I think, sounds like a cool idea. And the first one I tried, I, I just leaped back in horror. To me, the, I instantly felt not attached to the bike. Um, my feet were wiggling around and wobbling around, and I felt very uncomfortable. Though um, so I'm not a fan of them for off-road. I think for on-road, they can be... Not bad because all of a sudden it's easier to get your foot underneath the gear lever. On the other hand, if your gear lever is positioned correctly, maybe you don't need to have that extra ease from the foot peg actually rotating. So I'm not much of a fan of pivot pegs. Do you see I a lot of people it. running uh, pivot pegs? Um, too often. And I've had a number of different reactions to them. I've had people say, I absolutely love them. I think they're the best things in sliced bread. And other people say, no, sold mine. So there's a lot of personal opinion on it. Uh, I'm sure some people are very happy with them and they work very well for them. But uh, as a general base, I think it's a lot of money to spend for something that maybe has a slight improvement. A lot of this is personal choice, of course, right? I mean, one person, like you said, may have one opinion, another person have another opinion. It's some of the stuff you have to try out. Yeah, it's all opinion. That's one of the things I keep trying to push on to people is if this has to work for you. Everybody has a different opinion. I've had, got an opinion that I've learned from lots of years of writing and paying attention. And I'm, I'm a detail guy. I, I look at the details and the fine-tuning, and I want perfection. Um, I want to make sure everything's exactly right. Uh, I used to oil my, the chain on my road racer with the lightest oil I could find because that would made it turn with less friction. You know, detail, detail, detail. Um, so I'm always trying to get a little bit better. And fine-tuning the fit, I think, is really important to get that little bit better. Okay, now let's talk adjustments. Okay, what do we need to do to get the gear lever and brake pedal right? First off, I like to start with the gear lever. Once we've got that one set right, it's fairly easy. It's not that difficult to adjust, and all gear levers are easily adjustable. So start by sitting on the bike and get your ankle at a 90 degree. We don't want to bend it in or out. We don't want to rotate your toes out. We want your foot pretty much straight forward. And then you'll find that your gear lever is either underneath your foot or it's interfering with your foot or it's above your foot. And what you want is that gear lever tip to be effectively in the center of your boot, on the height of your boot, center of the boot height-wise. Okay? If, if it's dead center in the neutral position, that means that it's an equal amount of effort to put your foot down to get underneath the lever or it's an equal amount of effort to lift it up to change gears the other way. 
So you end up riding with your toes slightly out or with your foot back behind the gear lever, which is a position I use a lot. I move back and forth. But we want to start at that neutral position again, which is with your instep on the foot peg and the gear lever in the middle of your foot. Now, length is another adjustment that you need to make sure you get right. Um, I've got a size 9 foot, which for men is actually fairly small, size 8 in Europe for you Europeans, uh, or a 43. It's a fairly small boot foot for my size, so I end up buying a gear lever that's adjustable from Touratech that means I can pull my foot peg, or my, sorry, my gear shift lever tip back just a little bit from the stock position. It, the stock GSA has a rotatable tip, but it's not quite enough for myself, so I've shortened it. Other people with size 12s or 13s, yep, get a lever that you can adjust and make it longer. And ladies, you'll probably want a shorter gear lever. So that's something to get right. And now, when you're making it shorter or longer, you're changing the leverage to it. So in other words, the distance you have to move it, is it noticeable enough to be a concern? Not that I've ever noticed. A size 12 guy, <laughs> unfortunately, the size 12 foot guy has so much leverage, and he's probably the guy that doesn't need the leverage, and the size 6 lady is probably the one that does. Right. But any modern motorcycle shifts so easily and smoothly that it's not something I've ever noticed. How are you going to adjust the lever? How do we move uh, it up and down? Moving it up and down is normally very straightforward. All gear levers are held onto a shaft with a clamp, undo, or sorry, with a pinching bolt. Undo the pinch bolt pull the lever off, rotate on the splines, put it back on, pinch it back up. Those are the, the common and easy ones. Lots of bikes also have a lever coming off the lever. So you've got a 90-degree arrangement like an L. And off of that, there will be a rod which has an adjuster on it. And that adjuster is really nice if you've got that system because you can really fine-tune the exact adjustment and, and move it that two millimeters or an eighth of an inch or whatever you need to get it exactly right. So it's all gear levers are adjustable. It may not be instantaneously obvious, but trust me, they're all adjustable. Yeah, the, the one with the spline, you're actually going to have to go those set degrees of movement. You, you're going to have to choose one of them, whereas, like you said, the other one's sort of infinitely adjustable. Yeah, there are, it's, the spline adjustment only is a bit coarse, but if you find that it just isn't working quite right for you, very often you can get a lever that has some adjustment up or down on the, on the tip, or you can actually just put a new tip on it. Somebody in a welding shop can change the tip around, move it up or down for you. Generally, you don't need it. Generally, the spline adjustment is close enough that it's not an issue. While we're talking about adjustments, this probably doesn't fit into this, but what about the wire running off of the shift lever? Ah, the brush, brush guard. Yeah, that's if you're riding off-road in brushy area, which here in BC we have a lot of, you can run a, a steel cable from the intersection of the tip of your gear lever, the part that you step on, to the frame up forward or your skid pan. And you run that cable. It's designed to prevent brush from getting caught in between your gear lever and the engine and stopping you very suddenly sometimes. You also do the same thing on the brake lever side. The trick with it is to make sure that no matter how far the lever goes up or down, you're not tightening the cable. So you have to have some slack in the cable. Mm. And you wouldn't want to have it um, go any farther than necessary as well. Yeah, you don't, you don't want it too long. You want it as short as you can get it and still be within your range of adjustment without causing you issues, especially on the brake pedal because as your brakes wear at the end of a long day, your brake pedal is going to sink a little bit farther than it did. And if you suddenly come up against the cable when you need that brake and you're pushing hard, you're in deep trouble. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, the, the shifter sounds pretty straightforward. What about the brake? The brake is actually, unfortunately, a little bit more difficult. It's a little more complicated. Um, 
you still want to have the, the brake pedal position in the right place, which in this case is exactly under your foot. And the number of times I see brake pedals that are set too high makes me weep. Think about it. You're riding down the road, car jumps out in front of you and does something stupid and you want to stomp on your brake. Now, do you want to lift your foot, rotate in and then stomp? Or do you want to just push and have your brake come on? Mm -hmm. I know I want to be able to have that instant braking. Push the pedal down, bang, it's on instantly. So I make sure that my brake pedal is positioned exactly under my foot. My instep is on the foot peg and the ball of my foot is on the brake pedal. So anybody does something stupid, I've got instant braking as quick as I can get it. And getting the rear brake on first, even before I get my hand on the front brake, is a good thing because it makes the bike squat and gets the weight onto the front wheel much better. So you're going to stop quicker regardless. So that's I think, is, is something really important. Um, when you stand up, however, you have a problem because your foot is going to change position significantly. And this is where you need to have, um, well, the 1200 GSA BMW and the 800 GSA come with a little lever that flips out and down to raise the height of the brake pedal in order to mean that when you're standing, you still have the brake pedal in the right position. Now, the fact that BMW went to the expense and effort of making sure that that little gadget is there to give you six millimeters, roughly a quarter of an inch extra height, means that they think that six millimeters is an important amount of adjustment. And I've seen brake levers that are out by half an inch, three quarters of an inch, an inch. You know, you can actually, I've seen people put their foot underneath their brake pedal. It's ridiculous how far off they are because that's where it came. That's how it was. So people adapt. But you want to get that brake pedal in the right position. Now, there are, on some bikes, very easy adjustments. It's very obvious. On other bikes, it's a little more fiddly and a little harder. And I remember one class a number of years ago, um, a girl said, I've got an S650 GS, and I can't figure out how to adjust your brake pedal. I know you said it's adjustable, but I can't figure it out. And I never really looked closely at a brake pedal on a 12, an S650 GS. So I said, well, okay, let's have a look. And I looked at it and said, hmm, yep, it's adjustable. Where's the big hammer? There's a metal peg that sticks out from the frame, and the brake pedal hits it. And what you do is you bend the pin. It's just, it's just like, you've got to be kidding me. But, yeah, that's it. That's how it's done. You just bend it. Now, is there anything else we should be adjusting? Like as far as the foot area? And the foot area, that's really it. Once you've got the foot peg itself sorted, you've got that rubber out of there. You've got good pegs that work for you. They're big enough, but not too big. Um, your gear shift lever and brake pedal are in the right positions. Gear shift lever in the middle of your foot, brake pedal under your foot, toes in as best you can. Um, that's really it. It's not complicated. This is what frustrates me when I see it bad. So, so far last week we did the cockpit area and we talked about the windscreen and your levers. This week we've done the foot area. What are we going to talk about next week? We're going to talk about seats. and Everybody loves talking about seats. Yes. Pain. <laughs> very important. Grant, once again, thanks very much. Oh, good to be here. Hope that helps everybody. Talk to you next week. Thank you. That was Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited. You can find out more about Grant and what he does at www.horizonsunlimited.com. As a matter of fact, if you want to see what he's talking about in person, then you might want to check out one of the hub meets, which are all around the world, and see if you can find one where Grant is there doing his demonstration on bike ergonomics. Then you'll actually get to see the thing firsthand. And of course, that link will be in our show notes. Well, AeroStitch still runs the Ride More Guarantee. 
which is if you try any Aerostitch One Piece R3 or Roadcrafter Classic riding suit for one month and you're not riding more than you did before you received it, you can send it back and get a full refund. No questions asked. How can you ask for more than that? You, you, I mean, you have the chance to try the suit out and they're so confident you're going to love it that they're going to give you your money back and not ask any questions if you don't like it. I'll tell you, I've been riding with the 81 pants for a while. And if you get a chance, drop by their website, www.arrowstitch.com forward slash ARR. And of course, that forward slash ARR lets them know you came from Adventure Rider Radio. It'll also get you 10% off your first order or if you're a repeat customer, free shipping on your next order. So keep that in mind when you're going there. The 81 pants, if, if you go through their jackets and pants section, you'll find the 81 pants. That's what I've been using for quite a while now. Really nice fit on the pants. And I still enjoy these pants. I've got a lot of miles on them already. They've kept me warm and dry through all the weather that I've ridden in with them. It says www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, you have to love the KLR 650. I mean, really, even if you, you don't own one, if you know anything about them, they're, they're sort of a do-everything bike. Well, what's really cool is I used to have an 06, and I absolutely loved it. I would like to get another one. If you have one of the older ones, up to 07, you probably look at your fairing, which is very tiny and, and needs to be modified, and think you'd like to do something with it. There's a lot of modifications out there, but there's a company that is now making replacement fairings for them. It's called Obsessive Cycle Disorder. And they have a, a fairing. It, the guy's name is Sam Spitz, by the way. He um, he's came up with this for himself. He'd originally planned it for his own bike. He put so much work into it, he's decided to manufacture them and sell them. Durable, hand-laid fiberglass construction. It's made in the USA. It leaves your stock lights in there. It's a bolt-on modification. It's uh, no modification to the bike. And he's saying it offers you superior wind protection for up to the 07 model. Very cool. And not a lot of money for it either. So if you're looking for a great way to modify your front end, I, I got to say, you know, with my 06, that was my one beef was that fairing. I, I didn't just didn't like the look of the fairing. And of course, I didn't like the wind protection I got from it. So this might be a solution for you. It's called the RF-1. And I think Sam's got a really cool thing going on here. His company is called Obsessive Cycle Disorder. And uh, you can get that www.klrfairings.com. And of course, let Sam know you heard him here on Adventure Rider Radio. That's www.klrfairings.com. Well, we're on the subject of setting up the foot area of our motorcycles, and we're talking about possibly replacing our foot pegs themselves. I wanted to take a minute and talk about foot peg design, because sometimes when you look at something like this, you can just figure it's a simple foot peg, you know, that all foot pegs are created equally. And... That's not the case. As you start to look into the different manufacturers and the different designs they have and the ideas they have for foot pegs, you find out there's a lot of R&D goes into it. From the overall shape, and I'm not just talking size, the overall shape that they cast the foot peg in, the metals they use, whether it's a, a cast or whether it's aluminum or steel, and even the design of the teeth themselves, all these things make a difference in how the foot peg performs and how it feels to us as a rider. And if you think about it, anytime you're standing on that foot peg, that foot peg becomes extremely important. 
IMS Products is a sponsor of this show. So we decided to reach out to IMS, to Scott Wright, who's a co-owner, and he's also a racer and an, an adventure rider as well, and talk to him about how they design their pegs. What goes into the making of a peg? And I think this is really important whether you're looking at IMS Products or any products to understand the work that goes in, or at least should go in, to the design of your foot peg. So for this, we went to IMS headquarters in Riverside, California. My name is Scott Wright, and I'm from um, Riverside, California. Uh, the company is IMS Products, and I'm a co-owner here at the company. Scott, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks. Love being here. Maybe we can start off by you talking about how you come up with a foot peg design. It's uh, Each time we make a design to a foot peg, it's specific to the end user, the application, obviously. And we keep in mind the different types of riding, the terrain, the motorcycles, uh, whether it be like enduro cross, supercross, if it's off-road, um, if it's adventure riding. We're going to try to keep that criteria in mind as a, an outline of parameters. And then the only variation from there would be probably the aggressive nature towards the rider. Does he need a sharp peg? Does he need a platform that's just a sturdy platform, but it doesn't need that? sharp tooth that would uh, be required for a, a muddy condition and, and like ruts, things of that nature, extreme riding. Now, I'm glad you said that rider you mentioned in there, uh, what suits the rider, because this is why we're talking about foot pegs. We change our foot pegs because the, the factory foot peg is not really suitable for everyone. Well, I think what the factories do is pretty darn good in a lot of ways. Unfortunately, um, Especially when we talk about adventure bikes, it seems to me that the stock foot peg, they have a couple of uh, parameters that they try to address. But for the most part, uh, it is, it's about as genetic as it gets. When you look at a, a foot peg and the, the size of most of the foot pegs that are out there, they have not evolved very much over the last three or four decades in comparison to just about every other component on the bike. Well, why do we want to replace them? I mean, what are we going to gain? Multiple factors. Uh, when we're talking specifically about adventure, you're talking about a bike, and I would take, say, maybe a BMW 1200 since that's the iconic you know, target that everybody shoots for. Not that everybody has that big of a bike, but you'll look at a bike that's virtually 600 pounds, and you put a, an average rider, say he's anywhere between 150 and 220, and then you put some bags and such on there. you got upwards to 1,000 pounds going down the road. And on bigger bikes as a whole, and I would say anything 650 and above, you find um, a greater control with the foot peg. You actually steer these big bikes with your feet more than you do your handlebars. So your controls, whether it be your brakes or whether it be uh, you know your throttle and your your steering through your handlebars, those are all componentries of controlling the bike. But the foot peg is probably the most critical one. Not only is it a platform that you're standing on for comfort and for stability. Uh, while you're navigating that big bike, but basically just by weighting your legs left or right, much like you would do snow skiing through powder, you find that the bike will turn on a dime. It's like having power steering. And so obviously with a larger platform, you get a, uh, a more secure footprint where you're, you're standing on something securely, but you get greater leverage. And again, it's just like power steering. When you go to 
go to actually place your foot down and you place that pressure down. You can stick your bike on a center stand is the best way to look at this. And if you have a center stand and you get on your bike and you flex your, your knees left and right and distribute your weight left and right, you can actually wag the front end on a bike like a, a tail of a dog. It's kind of interesting. And so the application is, is that as you're going down a road, it could be an off-camber road. It could be uh, you know slippery, slimy up in the mountains and the logging trails and such. You're on this big bike. It's wet. You've got this layer of, of mud on top. It's just like slime. And the front end's wanting to push, especially if you're taking a right-hand or left-hand turn and you're going off-camber. The bike just wants to push. It wants to go downhill. And by weighting the inside peg, the uphill portion, uh, the bike literally steers like it's on rails. And so not only is it a control point, it's actually a safety mechanism, again, for the secure footing and for the control of that big bike. So those are the two primary. And then the third one that I would add on there would be the fact that uh, if or when is probably more accurate, when you take a tumble, whether it's in a parking lot, whether it's on a gravel road, no one wants to think about uh, the concept of going down on one of these big bikes. But if you're doing anything over and above going to, to Starbucks on one of these bikes, you're probably at some point, it's just going to happen. You're going to go down. And if we're dressing to crash and we're preparing our bikes for a crash, albeit engine guards and things of that nature, you're really not going to do too much damage. And the foot peg is one of those areas. If you do hit a rock, uh, if you're off-road or you do fall over, the stock pegs are going to fold up like a piece of uh, foil. They're going to be junk. And now you've got an issue about getting back to your destination or to where you're going to get a replacement part. And so we try to make something uh, with the mindset that not only is it superior in its performance, superior in its um, overall you know, size as far as a, a platform to put your foot down, but we try to make something that is unparalleled as far as strength. And that's really, I think, one of our strong suits, regardless of what peg we make, because we use the same combination for every single peg, and whether that's a, a super stock peg, which is going to be one of our smaller pegs that would be on something like a PW50, all the way up to any one of the uh, bikes we're discussing, including a 1200. It's a, a great peg. It's bigger than stock. And and then moving our way all the way to the ADV1 and ADV2 segment of the pegs, which are substantially larger, all the pegs are still manufactured with a 17.4 certified stainless steel. They're heat treated, they're annealed, they're homogenized. And so the, the work and the understanding that goes behind the preparatory work on that metal as a metallurgist, we try to make something that is going to be the strongest, but at some point it's going to have yield to it to where it doesn't fracture or nor does it uh, shear off a frame mount. And so this, this is the combination that we're looking for. So thought again, being safety, but if a bike does go down, we might bend a peg slightly. Uh, we're hoping that by, based on the design that that peg will have a spring back rate so that it will retain uh, very close to its stock, you know, original shape and the peg will get you back and you'll be great to go. But we took one of these uh, ADB one pegs and stuck it in a, a press, we were able to squeeze it together and actually touch the uh, interior diamonds, if you will, because the interior structure is the shape of an IMS logo. And as we touched those diamonds together, we let that pressure off and the peg sprung right back to its original shape. And there was just a mark of the, uh, 
the vice that it was in, and that, that was it. So, really? Um, wow, yeah. I'm surprised to hear that because I always think of cast as being brittle. No, uh, casting is an interesting concept because depending on the quality of the cast, depending on the metal that you're casting, you can have uh, an embrittlement that happens. In fact, a lot of the OEM mounts, whether it be a road bike or right up to the Africa Twin, um, I look at those mounts as, I'll call it inferior casting. Uh, the types of metals, the aluminums, or just uh, pot metals and certain things that is, are being used, they're very brittle. So the mount actually becomes a weak link at some point. And so the castings, if you're using a proper steel, whether it be like a 303 or a 174, and you have to figure out what it is you're trying to achieve, again, your, your end run, uh, tensile strength and your yield and all those things – but when you use a proper metal, a certified metal, you don't have the air pockets in there, uh, and it's done proper with, again, the annealing, the heat treating, the homogenizing, you're actually bringing those molecular little round circles, if you will. You're blending them all together so it becomes one piece of steel. And so they're very, very, very strong. That's incredible. I didn't realize that, when, especially when it comes to casting. It's amazing to think there's that flexibility, which that's your uh, margin for error. Like you said, if you go down, then hopefully that's what's going to happen is you're going to have some sort of at least uh, energy absorption there. But is that all there is to it? Just a really high quality metal and a bigger pedal? Or is there a size requirement here and a, and a design requirement beyond that? It's, that's a good question. Um, you, we said something at the beginning of, of this conversation. Um, we, I personally don't believe one foot peg is for everyone. And we've been making foot pegs since the mid seventies, uh, actually working into the later seventies is when we started making a, what was called our flight line series. But we've got about seven different models of foot pegs now because we realize not everyone's foot, not everyone's need is the same. And so what we try to do is we try to find a, not only the composition of the peg, the size of the peg, we try to find the proper tooth design that best fits that rider as some like the ease of the boots sliding a little bit more and um, they don't like the extra traction where other ones, they tend to be more aggressive and they're looking for more of the dirt. And so we're trying to be cognizant of that. So we will put, you know, uh, variations of tooth designs to these pegs and shapes as well that will best suit the ergonomics. Uh, I, I specifically, I'll take the three pegs here. We'll talk about the Adventure 1, the Adventure 2, and then the Rally Peg. The Adventure 1 and Adventure 2, the overall length of the peg is the same. And um, when you get into the differentiation between the two, we have an extra circular kind of a puck shape that's at the front of the peg. So when a rider is doing extensively long rides and they want to get up and stretch on, on a bike, I did a 1,000-mile ride uh, about two years ago. We did it in one day. And um, when you do rides, long rides, well, it doesn't have to be a 1,000 miles. It could be – 200 miles. You want to get up and you want to stretch out at certain points. And you have a choice. You can pull over, get off, stretch. You can do that at your fueling stops. Or a lot of times when you're out there uh, on greater spanses of, of terrain and you're coming across Montana or Utah and places like that, it's not uncommon to go a couple hundred miles, 200, 300 miles without kind of you know pulling over and getting fuel and stretching in that way. But I like to personally stand up on my BMW 1200 multiple times and just stretch out. And as I'm standing up, I feel as though I'm standing on the actual ground itself. It's that nice of a platform. And so that ADV2 or ADV1 afford that. And one affords a little bit more uh, surface area to put your foot on. 
and then the other, and that would be the ADV2. And now the rally peg is, is a peg that is actually made with the same style as our core series, which is used in off-road. And um, all the GNCC, the Hare and Hound, the Works Champions, all the guys that have national championships here in 2016, they all use the core peg. And so that particular design is incorporated into the rally peg, and the rally peg's just longer. It's about five-eighths of an inch shorter than the ADV1, ADV2s, but it's much longer than the stock peg. It's wider than your stock pegs, and it has a, what appears to be a little bit more aggressive tooth pattern than an ADV1 or ADV2. Now, as sharp as it may look, it does not rip your boots up, uh, contrary to what some would think. Uh, the tooth design on that is such that, again, we made them uh, with the footprint of an IMS logo. So when you look down at one of the pegs, you'll see the IMS diamond makes up the tooth pattern. And it has a, a cutout for mud so that the mud will fall away. The way the, the peg is constructed and designed, engineered, uh, the way the reliefs are, if you look at the underside, they're all reverse cuts. And so it allows for the mud to drop out, um, debris to drop out. So if somebody's becoming more aggressive, they're doing single tracks, they're out on muddy roads, they're up in the northern hemisphere where you tend to get a lot more mud and elements like that, it's going to give you a lot more tractability. You're still going to have the same superior strength to the 17.4 with all the processes we already discussed, but you're going to have a peg that is uh, a little bit more aggressive and um, it's going to give you that extra tractability with your with your boot and contact on there. And then we have different pegs below that that would work as well. We have a Pro Series and we have a Super Stock. So we have some smaller pegs that, again, will get into different shapes, different sizes, and different uh, tooth variations from sharper to mild application. Chris, I remember one time talking to you about your pegs in particular, IMS pegs, and you were talking about where you add the extra width onto the peg. Can you talk about that? Yes. Um, what we do is we actually take the width. If we talk about width, just to say this, think of width as front to back and think of length as going left to right. And so what we've done, going left to right, there's only one way to go. You're going right you know, on the right side, left on the left side. So We'll go out a little bit wider, but again, we'll go out where we feel as though it does not inhibit bank angle in any way. So if a person's a knee dragger on one of these big bikes, they can still drag a knee. And if they get down and they can actually touch a peg, well, they should have a trophy just to start with, first of all. <laughs> and if they do actually hit that peg and it, and it comes up, it's still going to have the same clearance and relief that a stock one would. So the peg will simply rotate up. So that's not going to be an issue. But we put that overall length on there so that their foot has um, a, a better place for platform. And honestly, if you just took a, I would call an average size shoe, I'm going to say maybe 10, you put an average size shoe, a 10 sneaker, and you put it on top of one of these pegs and the peg just about disappears. Getting back to your question, uh, left or right, we're just going to go outward, obviously, uh, various lengths depending on what model it is. Now, as far as width front to back, we keep the leading face, and it's our plan to keep the leading face always where the stock peg was at. So you have an issue with a person's foot and shoe size as you're, you're talking about this particular segment here and 
uh, the controls down below. You have shifter, you have brake lever, you have feet that have to get in between those two when you're upshifting. And so we don't want to encroach on that area by going forward at all. So the width, as you would front to back, is always added to the rear. So you get the best of both worlds. You get a sturdy platform. You get something that's very comfortable, uh, just significantly more comfortable going down the road. You don't have that burning feeling on the bottom of your feet when you're taking the long rides anymore. You got a nice, safe platform, and all that uh, extra material is added going backwards. Can you go too big? Is there a peg that is too large or is any larger peg, uh, anything that's, that's over our stock going to be the right peg? I think any peg that's larger than stock is probably going in the right direction. I think that the pegs and some would argue maybe in saying, well, these are million dollar manufacturers and if a bigger peg was smart, why wouldn't they put one on there in the first place? I don't know. I don't know why they don't put a bigger peg on there. But when you get out to the people that use these, you know, I've dealt with people who set up the GS slalom courses at the BMW events. Uh, um, you know, I've, I've had one of those people, uh, and this is in line with this, this question here. Uh, two years ago at a BMW rally in Montana, he came up and he was like one of those guys that was scoffing out loud because his buddies were all going to buy a set of the ADV1s. And one guy was actually contemplating getting an ADV2, and he was asking his opinion. And this guy said, hey, you know, why would you want to put those floorboards on there? It's not a gold wing. And he was kind of cackling and mocking and having a good time. And I'm sure you've been at one of those shows where somebody's cooking and he has a little headset like Garth Brooks around his head and everybody's gathering around listening. <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're talking to some people and we had a good group of people here. There's 15, 20 people standing around. And then he, he, he was coming in and he was being kind of maybe negative in a way and just kind of saying pessimistic, I guess. And, uh, and I said, I said, I'll tell you what, what kind of bike do you have? And he says, well, I got a BMW 1200. I said, let me give you a set. I want to give you a set. He said, well, why would you give me a set? I said, because I want you to know. And he goes, well, I already, I know. I said, no, you don't know because you haven't tried yet. And if you don't know, then not being negative about it, it's almost like a point of ignorance. Okay. But if you take them out and use them, then you have the right to bad mouth until the cows come home. You know what I mean? And so we bolted a set on his bike and he took them out. He came back and he bought them. He insisted on buying them. And he must have brought 15, 20 people back in Montana. And then when we went back to Buffalo, New York, back there, Hamburg, um, there he was. He was the first person. And there was a gentleman looking at pegs and he walked up and I just smiled. And the first thing he said was, hey, if you don't have a pair of these on your bike, I guarantee you it's the worst mistake you'll ever make. He says, if I only put one part on my bike, it's going to be these pegs. And he goes, and I ride about 50,000 miles a year. And I thought it was kind of cool. Then to come to find out, I never knew this a year before. or And then this year I had found it out. He was the guy that works for them there. And he sets the GS course up, the slalom course up there in the field, in the dirt. So at the end of the day, um, I believe that if you're putting a wider peg on the bike, regardless of whose it is, I have nothing negative to say in terms of bad mouth in anybody's product out there. I think everybody has an idea and a way of going about uh, making something better. And I think they're all kind of going in the right direction when it comes to foot pegs. We have chosen a way to make a foot peg. We've given a variety of sizes. Um, I, I won't go any bigger than what I'm making right now. I think that becomes uh, something that is probably not needed in my estimation. Um, 
I'm an end user. I've been writing ADVs for uh, a long time, and uh, I've been riding and racing for a long time, from Baja to local deserts to motocross. Um, I try to put something out there that I think is going to improve every aspect of that person's bike. So in terms of the overall size, I would say that um, anything bigger is probably going to be better. And I think at the end of the day, you need to find out, you know, when you're investing your money, you know, what you're investing, the price you're paying, who you're buying from, what their thought process is behind making that product. And uh, listen to each one. Take the time because um, you can listen to someone and it's and it's good information. And then you can find yourself going to the next place and talking to somebody else and saying, oh, I wish I would have waited. So not to put people off from going out. But do some investigation. Call the people up. Talk to them. Find out what's behind it. Find out what their warranties like. You know, get online and talk to other people about using them. You're always going to find certain people that crowd around certain companies because they like them for specific reasons, and that's always a good sign. And uh, find a company that's that's been doing it and knows those products and does it well and has a good service record and uh, a good product, and and make your investment. Scott, thank you very much. Absolutely, thank you. And that was Scott Wright from IMS Headquarters in Riverside, California. You can find out more about Scott, IMS, and the pegs by visiting www.imsproducts.com. And, of course, that link will be in our show notes. Tour USA is a motorcycle rental company based near Seattle, Washington. Uh, Tour USA is associated with PSSOR, and of course you know that from Brett Tax, from a rider skills course. Think Brett Tax, think Tour USA. So it's the perfect launching point for a West Coast trip to Canada, United States, or wherever you're going to go. The neat thing is Tour USA bikes are all equipped with adventure travel protection. So in other words, they've got Pelican panniers on there. They've got skid plates. They've got handlebar protectors. All the things that you need for an adventure. I mean, these are adventure people. Think Brett Tax. Think Tour USA, of course. Now, you can either go on your own trip. You can just rent a bike and go off on your own trip. Or you can join one of their their courses that they put on, one of the events they have. They've got guides, support vehicles, the whole bit. Tour USA is there to help make your dream ride come true. And you know the thing I like about this is you can fly out with your helmet and your jacket or whatever, rent a bike, go on a trip, and then fly back home. Like, it's really easy to have a nice vacation. So www.tourusa.us. That's www.tourusa.us. And of course, anytime you're talking to them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, we had the good fortune of having Scott Wright from IMS Products on, as you heard just now on this episode. Um, but uh, I want you to drop by their website, imsproducts.com. One of the reasons we had him on, because he's an expert in making foot pegs, but also they make stellar foot pegs. Um, I'm riding on them right now. And I'll tell you, it absolutely helps with control. It's one of those um, additions that you do to your motorcycle that you feel immediately. When I mounted this set of pegs on my bike, it took all of about 25 feet for me to feel the difference. It took the distance from me to go around a vehicle and sort of head out on the driveway. And as soon as I stood up on the pegs, it was immediate. I could feel the difference. It's, it's just more support under your feet. You, you've got to drop by them. I'd really say if you have not ever tried bigger foot pegs, you need to try them. You absolutely do. IMSproducts.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. 
We talked about chain oilers on Adventure Rider Radio before, but maybe you have decided you didn't want to try one. Maybe you didn't like the delivery system. Some people have talked about the nozzles being down at the bottom of the sprocket and being caught by brush, you know, if you're riding in any sort of rough stuff. Well, this chain oiler that we've just found out about is wind-powered, and it delivers the oil to the chain in a unique way that we haven't seen before. So I think it's of real interest for you. And on top of all that, it's not that expensive. You can get this thing for under 100 bucks. Mike Steele has invented something he calls the Moto Breeze Chain Oiler. Uh, my name is Mike Steele, and I'm from a small town in southern Maryland called La Plata, and it's about 30 miles south and a little bit east of Washington, D.C. Um, I'm a mechanical engineer by degree. I've, I worked in the defense industry, primarily with the United States Navy. Um, I've worked on everything from submarines to aircraft carriers. Um, and I've started a started Moto Breeze chain oilers about back in the middle of 2013. Mike, great to have you on the show. Thank you for thank you for having me. So the chain oiler, we've talked about chain oilers on this show before. We have Gravity Feed, we had Scott Oiler on here as well. This is a different concept. This is the first one that I've ever seen like this. I assume it's probably the only one because I know you have a patent on it. As far as a chain oiler goes, I think we all understand why a chain oiler can be advantageous to us as motorcycle riders. The big thing with them, in a lot of cases, is managing the flow because, you know, your your bike goes from going slow to going fast, etc. And a lot of systems have been made up to uh, to sort of help manage that flow, including even electronics. But some of them are just gravity feed where you open a valve. Yours is completely different and you call it wind-powered, which I find very interesting because immediately you put up the idea of a wind turbine in my mind at least anyway can you tell us basically how this system works right and and i don't think you're um in a minority when you hear wind power and you think of a wind turbine a lot of people you know picture a big propeller installed on the front of your motorcycle and and i'll tell you that this this system it wasn't like a lightning bolt hit me one day and said oh wind power we can you know to to know exactly how to do it It, it, it's one of these things i kept thinking about it a little bit and then i'd say no that's not going to work i put it on a shelf but basically the way the system works is you you have a tube bounded right on the front of the motorcycle and that points directly into the wind like into the direction of travel and it's when, when you start moving the the wind hits that tube and uh, travels through the tubing and goes into a reservoir that's normally located under the seat that reservoir gets pressurized and then that that's the motive force that forces the oil up through a flow restrictor and then goes to, through another tube and it goes down to an applicator that applies oil directly to the chain and so one of the things um, with controlling the flow you know you want more oil um, when you go faster and less oil when you slow down. So using the wind also was kind of a natural choice because when you slow down, the, the wind pressure goes down, which makes the oil flow slow down. So so it goes you know, faster, the oil flows faster, the faster you ride in your motorcycle and slows down when you slow down and eventually stops when you stop. It sounds really simple when you say, oh, I just got a hose out front and the air pressure goes mm-hmm. in and forces the oil out. It's not quite that simple, is it? Right. And, and I can tell you when I first developed it, when I first kind of had the, the idea of the concept of how it would work, the, the first prototype really was like a, a, like a pop bottle, you know, the, uh, you know, just a small plastic container. I, you know, attached some tubes to it, one for air and one f- uh, for an outlet and just basically just filled it up with water and then ran that outlet into another container, went out and then there was no flow restriction in it at the time, just went out and rode my bike and 
about five miles, took the seat off and, and checked, and the water had transferred from one container into the other. So that was really the first crude prototype of the of the system. But but yeah, there it's not quite as uh, quite as simple as just you know throwing a container um, under your seat and running a tube up to the front. There was a lot of experimentation that went into um, one figuring out how to get the oil to stop once you stop. So the positioning where you put the flow restrictor in the device is crucial because if it's on a if it's on a down tube, you're going to end up getting a siphoning effect. When you stop the oil that's in the down tubes, want to is going to want to siphon the rest of the oil out. You know, it may be very slow. It may happen overnight, but uh, uh, it can still be a problem. And then the other thing was figuring out how to, how to regulate the flow down to a, a very low level. So you really just kind of get oil that's trickling out of the device and going down to your chain. So those were kind of the, the those are the two big things to, to, to try to figure out when uh, designing this system. And really the thing, this is the thing that separates it from a gravity system. It's, it's easy to set up a gravity system even on your own. You put oil in a reservoir and you, you run a hose down and you can get you know various connectors to try and get the, the oil to drip on the chain. But the big problem with that is if you don't remember to shut it off, you end up with oil everywhere. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and that was one of the... I, I experimented with chain oilers because the reason I even started this was because I had bought a chain-driven bike and I was real meticulous about you know wanting to keep up with the maintenance schedule and everything, and so I had I had built I'd gotten really tired of the you know the the routine of having to clean and uh, clean and lubricate the chain, um, so I had built uh, some gravity feed ones and I'm I'm talking as crude as a PVC pipe with a couple of end caps on it and and things like that and a, a flow restrictor that was actually out of a you know the drip irrigation where you can water plants you know with drip mm, irrigation yeah. that was the that was a a flow restrictor that I used and and but then I had a little valve that I'd shut off and I would I would turn it on at gas stations you know after I got gas but a lot of times I'd forget to turn it off and you have a mess and you know, so if you forget to turn it off when you get home then you've got you know a pool of oil on your garage floor <laughs> the next day so yeah. so so yeah this one. That that was the other advantage of using the wind was that you know when you stop the wind the the pressure that operates the device goes away. So, as you said, you have the hose up front collecting the the wind that comes into your bike. It goes back to the reservoir, which puts pressure on the oil and delivers the oil to the chain. How do you get the oil on the chain? Um, this system, um, I know a lot of the other systems will use a. Um, a tube that, go, that goes and applies the oil directly to the sprocket, and then the centrifugal force of the, the sprocket rotating will force the oil out to the chain. This one, what we did was um, there's a small uh, a felt applicator, and, and where that installs is on the, the swing arm slider, the thing that keeps your chain from uh, beating up your swing arm. It actually installs with an adhesive right onto that chain slider, and then it, it's got a the down tube actually connects to a fitting that's right on that felt applicator. So the oil gets ported directly into that felt, and then that the felt transfers the oil directly to the chain. Yeah, I, I was really interested when I saw the photograph of that. So you, you've got some sort of little plastic connector, I, I gather, with some drain holes that the hose connects into, and then it's basically uh-huh. making that sort of uh, that felt pad wet as the chain skips across it and lubricates right. the chain. And does it lubricate evenly then? Yeah, it... it, it um, it seems to because the I, can't, I guess the way the the if you think about the way a chain's constructed, you've got side plates and then the roller that's in the middle. So what happens initially when that when the chain rides across that felt? Because obviously you know steel chain versus felt, you know who's going to win. 
um, the side plates of the chain will wear grooves into that felt. And then then once the roller makes contact with the felt, then the, the wear slows way down. So if you think about the way the oil would travel into that felt, it goes into a fitting and all the oil kind of will s- sort of sink to the bottom of that felt. So it kind of almost comes in from the bottom, you know, when, so as the, those side plates um, uh, go across, they're kind of drawing oil up from the, from the bottom of the felt. Now I saw on your website, you sell replacement felts. So obviously they're going to wear out. How long do you get out of a felt? How many miles? Um, I'd say um, the, the, what we advertise is about 5,000 miles in between uh, the felt pad changes. But, you know, I've, I've gone as long as 8,000. A lot of times I'll try to stretch them out to coincide with tire changes because that's a point when you've got the chain loose and everything like that. But pretty much uh, 5,000 miles is kind of the nominal. And what's it like to replace it? Um, it's not bad. You just basically you kind of peel it up, peel it off of the um, – and it, it doesn't pop right off, you know, so it's kind of like um, trying to think. It's almost like peeling a sticker off of something. Uh, and then you may have to take a, uh, you know, a little bit, a uh, little razor blade or something to scrape off any excess adhesive. And then you just replace the um, the applicator with adhesive. And actually this year we're coming out, the, the adhesive that we that we use right now takes about eight hours to cure. So when you put it on the, you know, you might put it on at night and then the next morning you're ready to ride. We've actually got a new adhesive that we're coming out with um, this year that's a urethane-based uh, adhesive. And it'll cure in about 45 minutes versus the eight hours. So you can put it on and so within an hour you're ready to ride. Um, you know, a lot of times that's not a problem because, you know, uh, if you're going on a long trip, if you put a new one on before a long trip, um, you, it's probably going to last the whole trip, so you may not need to put one on till you get home. But so, what, kind, what yeah. kind of oil are you putting in the reservoir? You know, you can really um, you can really use any oil that you want to. My favorite that, that I use is actually um, gear oil, like ninety weight gear oil, which happens to be the same. That's exactly what my service manual recommends. I've used regular motor oil before. I've used uh, bar and chain oil, which is what a lot of people use. Um, bar and chain oil works pretty good to lubricate. The only thing I find is it's a little bit sticky, um, you just a little bit tacky, and which you know helps it adhere to the chain better, but it also attracts a little bit more dirt. So I've really found the my favorite's been gear oil. The viscosity then doesn't really matter from one oil to the next, or is it not enough to make a difference? You know, I, I really don't notice that much of a difference. And one of the things from a kind of an engineering point of view, a lot of times you think of, okay, it's um, with colder weather, the oil is going to sl- flow slower. Yeah. And in warmer weather, it's going to f- flow faster. But there's something that naturally offsets that somewhat. And I can't say it completely offsets it. But if you think about the, what, the way wind pressure is developed, the, the formula for wind pressure is kind of the density is the density of the air times the velocity squared. So the velocity makes the most difference, but the density also makes a difference. And when the air gets colder, the density goes up. So that means the pressure goes up. So even though the oil is going to flow a little bit slower, um, the density of the air has gone up, which means for the same given speed, the air pressure is going to be higher. So that kind of offsets uh, – you know, changes in temperature with the oil, but but yeah, you can you can experiment with different kind of oils and find out what kind of suits you best. And and none of these oils are very expensive. Mm, yeah, barn chain oil is for chainsaws. Yeah, right. The, the only thing we really don't recommend using in this oiler are the 
the wax type lubes. You know, I know I know the Dupont multi-use uh, was real popular for a while. Um, that that's that kind of stuff. It's good stuff. I've used I used to use it before I used a chain oiler. But um, in this particular application, it can kind of gum up the flow restrictor and also the felt pad. You know, where the when if, if that stuff kind of dries, it'll kind of uh, may, may clog things up. So that's the only thing we really don't recommend. Other than that, you know, people experiment. Some people use automatic transmission fluid, um, things like that. So, how long do you get out of one reservoir? Um, nominally about a thousand miles. Um, I've gone, and and the the type of oil you use can sometimes affect that, but I don't find that it, it's a, a huge difference. But yeah, about a thousand miles, maybe fifteen hundred miles is is about the and the volume of that reservoir is about um, twenty five milliliters. You're not talking a lot of oil then. No, no. Yeah. So that's pretty good. A thousand miles. That that's pretty darn good. And and this reservoir is clear, so you can see exactly how much is in it. You can tell when you need to add more. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the only thing is just wherever you wherever you have the reservoir located, like for my particular application, I keep it and most people would keep it under the seat. So, you know, obviously you just have to take the seat off and check it once in a while. But, you know, if we're talking a thousand miles, I think most people will take the seat off you know, quite a few times in that in that time period. So the big question here is how many more miles are you getting out of your chain running your oiler? Well, I'll tell you, when I took meticulous care of my chain without using a chain oiler, I would get maybe twenty to 22,000 miles out of my chain. And some of the other chain oilers that I developed that were gravity feed, you know, the ones that uh, I had no intention to commercialize or anything, I would get maybe just a little bit more. And I think the problem with those was I wasn't putting the oil on the inside radius of the chain. And I think that's very important. And most of the other models on the market do this. The ones that put the oil on the sprocket, the oil ends up going to the inside radius of the chain. And I really think that's where you get the best results. And I can tell you that I've got on my bike now, I'm coming up on 50,000 miles on the same chain. Wow. and, you know, I can start seeing a few areas where there might be, a, you know, a couple of links have gotten a little bit, you know, where, tight spots, you know, where they don't completely unbend, you know, when they come off the sprocket. But if I check the wear readings, you know, taking an elongation, you know, what percentage elongation, that it's probably only at about half of the what the wear limit is of the chain, which is about a 1% elongation. It's about at a half a percent elongation right now. So I'm a real believer that any chain oiler, Motobreeze, Scott Oiler, Tutoro, any of the other ones on the market, I think they're, they really are a great benefit to the life of the chain. Well, I, I can't help but reflect the cost of your unit to the extra miles you're getting out of your chain. So your unit sells for, what, $92 or something like that? Um, right. U.S.? The cost of my chain set, for instance, when I just did it last time, was like $360 for a set. Uh-huh. I mean, if yeah. I can get even half again out of it, I'm in money here. So I'm very excited about that. But the other thing I was going to mention is that the difference with your uh, applicator for the oil using the felt pad as opposed to the nozzles on the sprockets, from what I understand with the nozzles, a lot of times they're running two nozzles so that they can get both sides of the chain. And you, right. so you've got two nozzles down there by your sprocket, which can be finicky. And um, whereas this is right up on top and doing the whole chain at once so i do like that yeah yeah it's a, and i th- i really think the the nozzles on the sprocket you know if you if you think about um you try to find somewhere along that path of chain that you can actually apply oil there really aren't very many choices <laughs> you know and so putting the nozzles out, uh, back on the sprockets i think that's a very ingenious idea and and i'll tell you that part of the reason that i 
went away from that with this oiler. One is is kind of like you mentioned that you know, you're you're back there. You've got a nozzle up against a, a rotating part, which you know maybe doesn't give you the best of feeling. But I think they you know they've probably got some pretty good mechanisms for securing those. But the one thing I, I never really liked about a lot of the oilers was the um, seeing the tube running, you know, the tube running down the swing arm for a long period, you know, a long long ways, and uh, it just you know, kind of to me took away a little bit of the aesthetics of the bike. And mm. I know you you can kind of hide that to some extent, but uh, so I, I really was kind of looking for somewhere that was um, a little more stealthy, you know. Uh, where it's not, you kind of stick out like a sore thumb kind of thing. Well, one of the other problems you find if you're riding any dirt, and especially if you get into brush and things like that, it's very easy to hit the nozzles and knock mm-hmm. them out of alignment. Whereas, and that's one thing when I'm looking at this with the felt pad up on top, it just puts it completely out of the way. So so for those of us who end up riding a lot of dirt and into a lot of uh, cruddy areas, this may be a, a nice option for us. Right. Well, Mike, I think you've done a wonderful job, and I uh, wish you the best of luck with this. It's great to have another option out there for us for chain oilers because um, it's certainly going to save a lot of money in the long run, I think. Yeah, well, I appreciate you having us on, and it's been a, a real adventure coming up with this and getting it on the market, and uh, I appreciate you giving us an opportunity to talk about it. I've been speaking with Mike Steele from Moto Breeze Chain Oiler. You can find out more about his new chain oiler at www.motobreeze.com. That's Breeze with two I's and a Z. You can drop by the website, of course, and we will have that link in our show notes. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you want when you're exploring the world. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system, and it's easy to switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. You've got to check out the buckles, the straps, the whole bit. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer Elizabeth Martin and to you the listener. Thank you for listening. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike I guess. Don't forget we've got another show ARR Raw. I know I've told you about it before but just in case you didn't hear that episode or maybe you didn't listen when I was talking. ARR Raw a separate show free to listen to. Drop by our website www.adventureriderradio.com and download for free. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe out there. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. See you next week.
name is Michelle Lamphere from SturgisChick.com, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Ah! 